Today I'm with Andy Brayshaw, former combat medic with 43 years experience in both the British and Australian Army. Andy has served in the Falklands War, 1st Gulf War, Croatia and Bosnia. Thanks for coming on Care Under Fire. No problems. My pleasure. Tell me initially, we like to start at the beginning here, about your younger years growing up in the UK and how did you go at school? Yeah, well, I, I came from quite a large family. I had sort of three brothers and three sisters and I was sort of in the middle area. Um, both of my parents were in the military, um, so we started off. Uh, life down in the south of England, um, but my 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 parents separated when I was young. Um, so when they separated, the the kids and my mum, we all moved up to live with her mum and dad up in Yorkshire, uh, and that's the area where I was brought up most of the time was in Yorkshire. We had a sort of a reasonable childhood, a bit hard at times, you know, single mum with looking after six kids, uh, so it's quite hard at times. Uh, but we all enjoyed ourselves. I didn't get in too much, too much trouble at school. I was a, sort of a, a little bit of a tear away, but not too much of a trouble. Uh, I didn't bring too much trouble to my mum's door. Although, you know, six kids, we can cause a little bit of trouble at times. <laughs> Back then, we didn't have sort of, you know, mobile phones and videos and things to entertain us. So we had to make our own entertainment. And you joined at 16. Uh, you joined the Defence Force at 16. How, how was that even legal? I mean, how does that work? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, well, I joined, when I joined the Army, it was a sort of straight after school back in 1977. Yeah. I joined what was called the um, the Army Apprentices College. Okay. So they had a scheme in the British Army back then where they took in what they called junior soldiers into the apprentices. So it's a bit like half, half like boarding school, half like the military. Um, so we did a lot of military training and stuff. We also did schooling as well. So we fell under military law and everything. Mm. Uh, so it's basically we're still doing military training, um, but we did a lot of schooling. And when I joined the army, I, I was brought up in a coal mining village. And I went down the mines once as part of my sort of school excursion for work placements. So I went down the mine once and I thought, that's nah, not a job for me, this. Um, and I'd always fancied being a soldier. Um, so I applied to join the army. Uh, I was lucky enough to um, to get it at the time, so I was quite pleased. So did you do that initial recruit training at 16 or a couple of years later? No, no, no. We did we did our initial recruit training as part of our apprenticeship. So as I said, half of the time we'd be doing military training, the other half of the time we'd be doing schooling. So we did all the drills, all the weapon handling, all our fitness tests and everything, just like any soldier would have done. Um but, you know, they they were still very strict with us because, as I say, it was still the military. So um, and it was a lot stricter back then than what it is now. So, you know, there was a lot mm. of shouting and swearing and all that sort of stuff at the troops because uh, we did have um, adult senior NCOs taking us for our, our training, our drill, our uh, military skills and everything. So we did basically the same as what uh, an 18-year-old would have done if he joined the army. It's just that our sort of traineeship went on for 18 months whereas a normal soldier would only go on for a couple of months yeah okay and straight into medical call was that what you wanted to do yeah 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 i joined straight into the medical corps so where i was with the juniors it's a it was a royal army medical corps apprentices college uh, at a place called keo barracks which was a home of the medical corps 
in uh, just outside Aldershot in the south of England. And I always wanted to be a medic because I always, when I was a kid, I was always playing at doctors. I always wanted to be a doctor, but I didn't have the brains for a doctor. <laughs> and when I started investigating military jobs and seeing what was available in the military, I found that they did, they had medics. And when I read up what a medic did, I thought, well, I'm not, you know, I'm not brainy enough to be a doctor, but I'm pretty sure I could do that. Um, so that's what I went for. Yeah. So how far into your service did the Falklands kind of kick off? And when did you find out that you'd be deploying? Yeah, I joined the Army in 77. Yeah. I passed out of the juniors in December 78. Uh, went into, got posted into my first adult unit, which was a regular army, uh, which was uh, 16 Field Ambulance. And then in April 82, uh, so I've been in the unit just over a year and a half. And April 82 is when the Falklands kicked off. Mm. So I went down there, sort of my 21st birthday present. Wow. And what was that like, having that deployment so young? Were you just tromping at the bit to get there and get involved or...? Oh, yeah, it was, it was, it was strange at the time because when the Falklands was first invaded, um, my unit, we were actually adventure training in Scotland. We were up in the Scottish Highlands doing skiing, adventure training. And I can still remember to this day what we were doing when the Argentinians invaded the Falkland Islands. And we, was, we were just having breakfast, sat out by the four-ton vehicles, um, just trying to decide which slopes we were going to ski today. When it came over the radio... Um, Argentina invades the Falkland Islands. And we all looked at each other quite puzzled and we're thinking to ourselves, how did Argentina get to Scotland without us knowing about it? Because it sounded Scottish, we thought the Falkland Islands was Scotland. <laughs> uh, little did we know, it was 8,000 8, miles away in the South Atlantic. Yeah, right. So it was a complete surprise to you at that time. You weren't tracking the political environment. and No, 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 yeah. no. It's, no. Yeah, it came out of the blue. And so, I mean, the Argentinians invaded on the 2nd of April. Um, by the 5th of April, the British government had mobilised the task force um, and the task force set off uh, on the 5th of April down towards the South Atlantic. The task force was made up of quite a few ships and that. There was over 30,000 personnel by the time the task force actually got down to the Falkland Islands. So it's quite a large task force. A lot of my friends from my unit, 16 Field Ambulance, they sailed down in luxury on the QE2. <laughs> the QE2 had been confiscated by the military really? to act as a troop carrier. Uh, yeah, yeah. So they sailed down in the comfort of the QE2. Um, unfortunately, my section and another section, we had to leave a little bit earlier than the rest of them. So we went down on what was called a Townsend Tourism Car Ferry which was designed for going across the English Channel. Yeah. It wasn't designed for sailing down to the South Atlantic. It was a bit like your Spirit of Tasmania, the ship that goes from Melbourne to Tasmania. Yeah. It was a bit like one of those ships. Yeah, a bit rough and roll around a little bit. I've actually fallen out of bed on the Spirit before in highways, <laughs> in pasture. Yeah. I just rolled straight out. <laughs> yeah. yeah, it was, it was okay. quite rough. I mean, there, was, there was six of us living in two-man cabins, so it's quite tight, tightly packed as well. And uh, as we sailed down to the Falklands, because it took about three weeks for us to get there, all the way down, we were all thinking to ourselves, you know, we're going to get so far, and then the British government are going to say, oh, turn around, it's all over with. You know, we don't have to worry about it. 
And it wasn't until the General Belgrano, the Argentinian battleship, got sunk by HMS Conqueror, the submarine. That's when we realised this is actually happening. So who were you attached to? Were you in a medical unit or were you attached to a combat unit at that time? And what was your role? Yeah, well, I was uh, I was a combat medic in the unit. Uh, my unit was 16 Field Ambulance, and we were the um, medical support for 5 Infantry Brigade, which is there was two okay. brigades that went down to the Falklands, 3 Commando Brigade and 5 Infantry Brigade. And we supported 5 Infantry Brigade. So we were attached to one of the um, infantry battalions. The 1st Battalion, the Welsh Guards, was the battalion that I should have been supporting when we went down there. So it was, uh, you know, we were sort of classed as frontline medics, most of us, because uh, we would have been on the front line when we got down there. Unfortunately, there was a little bit of a, um, a little bit of a mess up on the way down because, because we were in the, uh, the Baltic ferry, which was a, the ferry we went down on, it was much slower than the QE2. Uh, and the QE2 mm. overtook us. <laughs> so uh, when we got to the middle of the, Atlant- uh, middle of the Atlantic, a place called Ascension Island, that's where all, a lot of offloading was done. Um, the QE2 got to Ascension Island before we did. Um, and their orders were to move on to the Falklands. Uh, and, of course, they didn't have any medical support to move on with. So what they had to do was make up a couple of uh, medical sections from the dressing station medics and two of my mates went into the section that I was in so one of my mates he actually went down in my place um, so they sailed down to support the Welsh guards and we sort of went down in reserve. So you got air attack whilst you were on a troop landing ship down there as well the Argentinians were firing at you guys yeah, yeah, yeah. So basically, what happened is um, we, the the main, the three commando brigade, they landed at San Carlos in the Falklands on the twenty fourth of May, and they went, they moved forward, had a few battles against the Argentinians. So they set up the sort of the bridgehead. Um, we arrived on the second of June, uh, disembarked from our ships at San Carlos, dug in for a few days. Um, and then they decided that they needed to move the troops forward. And due to some communication errors, let's say, <laughs> uh, there was a few uh, little mishaps with moving the troops forward. Uh, and it ended up that we had to be moved forward from a place called San Carlos to Fitzroy by the landing ships. And we should have been doing it under dark because the Argentinian Air Force uh, we're having a, quite, a great success rate against the task force. It's sunk quite a few ships already. Uh, mm-hmm. So they're having quite a good success rate. So they, we were supposed to have gone round at night time, uh, but unfortunately, due to a few mess-ups, uh, we ended up sailing round during the daylight hours. And we arrived at a place called Bluff Cove at about uh, 11 o'clock in the morning, and we were sat out in the open waters for about four or five hours. Um, when we were attacked by Argentine aircraft. And there was two ships in the Bluff Cove at the time, the Sir Galahad and the Sir Tristan, which were both uh, landing support uh, ships. And the Sir Tristan got hit 
Um, there's, a, there's very few people on there, so we only lost a couple of people on there. But the Galahad was still fully laden, and I was on the Galahad as well. And the Galahad became known as a disaster at Bluff Cove because it was the biggest single loss of life for the British Task Force for the whole of the war. We had um, 55 killed and 177 wounded. So it's quite oh, wow. traumatic. And unfortunately, um, two of the people that, were that died on there were my two mates that took my place uh, from Ascension that went down to the Falklands. So it was one of those things that haunts you all your life, you know, hit my mate Scouse. He shouldn't have been there. It should have been me. So it was very hard to come to grips with the fact that my mate had been killed in my place. Yeah, but, I mean, you can't control the logistics of where you're sent and who's yeah. and who's put where. But, um, yeah, natural yeah. the mind goes to the what-ifs, I, I guess. Oh, that's yeah. it, yeah, yeah. Were you treating casualties then on the ship still? Yeah, it's, it's a bit weird, really, because even today, I don't know how I got off the ship. I can remember the ship being attacked. I can remember getting blown up some stairs and getting my top of my head head burnt and a bit of shrapnel in my rear end. Mm. Um, I can remember treating casualties on the deck. I can remember treating casualties on the shore, but I can't remember getting off the ship to the shore. And even today, I've got lots of video, uh, video film from the Falklands War uh, when the Galahad was hit, and I go frame by frame at all the evacuations trying to see if I can actually see myself. Yeah. And even today, I still don't know how I got off the ship. Wow. You probably had a bit of a traumatic brain injury from the blast then, I guess, and a bit yeah. of amnesia for part of it. Just incredible. Yeah. To think, yeah. you know, a few weeks before you're all just in training mode in largely a peacetime army and then yeah. you're there in the midst of an air raid in the Falklands and seeing massive yeah. amounts of casualties. Yeah, 56 killed. Yeah, yeah, that's right, yeah. I mean, it's, it, it's sort of like I say, you're, you're sort of thrown in at the deep end, you know. This is the first time that we'd ever actually dealt with real casualties. Yeah. I mean, I dealt with people that had been injured before because I'm... In 1979, they had an ambulance strike in the UK when they called in the military to do, cover the ambulances. So I'd seen some death in that, but not been as traumatic as what the Falklands was. Yeah, so lots of blast injuries, lots of burns and shrapnel mostly that you were treating that day. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, there lots of those. A lot of um, high-velocity high velocity, uh, gunshot wounds and blasts, blast injuries and... The burns were just horrendous. I mean, the majority of the casualties from the Galahad were burns victims. Yeah. Uh, it's like they say, you never you never forget the smell of burnt flesh. No, it's pretty horrific, isn't it? And yeah. what was your evacuation chain like? Was there a field hospital or AME available to get those casualties rearward? Yeah, well, we had basically what we did. The way it worked is um, all the infantry battalions had their sort of the regimental aid post with their medics forward. Um, once the casualties were sustained, they'd be dealt with by the medics from the RAP, uh, and then they would be evacuated from the battlefield by a helicopter to a place called Ajax Bay, uh, which is where the Marines and the Paras had their field surgical team. Uh, and it was actually christened the Red and Life Green Machine. 
because it was run by red berries and green berries. So it's called the Red and Life Green Machine. So most of the casualties initially were evacuated to there or to uh, another facility that was set up at Fitzroy where I was working there. So there was two basic areas, depending on how bad the casualties were. Once they'd been stabilised at Fitzroy and Ajax Bay, then they were evacuated to the SS Uganda, which was another ship that had been commandeered by the British government uh, and had been converted to be used as a hospital ship. Mm. So they were evacuated out, out to sea to the hospital ship. Um, and then from there, they'd be evacuated to a place called Montevideo um, in South America. And then from there, they would be flown back to the UK and Germany. Yeah, okay. So did the Galahad sink that day or obviously severely damaged? Now, what, what happened with the Galahad, the, the Sir Tristan didn't sink. The Galahad, um, it was so severely damaged that at the two weeks after the war had finished, um, they towed it away and sank it as a war grave. Because of all the people that were killed on the Galahad, we only managed to retrieve one body, um, and that was the body of my uh, 2IC, Major Roger Nutby, who I used to babysit for when I was at the unit. Wow. Yeah. So there are, it is a war grave still to this day then? Uh, yeah. We Well, we I was on his burial detail. We buried him initially at um, Ajax Bay. Um, and then I believe that after the war, they did a lot of repatriations. And I think he was repatriated back to the UK. Mm. So how long were you down there for? Um, I was down in the Falklands about two and a half months in total. It didn't sound a long time, but it felt a long time. <laughs> I, I bet. I, it it sounds like very intense uh, conventional warfare with very little preparation and um, you're just straight into it. You've gone from <laughs> skiing to that. Yeah, yeah. It was. There, there was a lot of... There was a lot of trench warfare out there because yeah. there was a lot of fighting in trenches and that. So, you you know, it was sort of charging the trenches and that and hoping for the best. Obviously, the Brits were successful in that campaign and they got the Falklands back, didn't they? Yep. And then how did you feel sort of coming home? You'd seen combat, you'd seen death on a pretty colossal scale as such a young man as well. How was that transition yeah, it's <laughs> unfortunately um, in the UK at the time we had a thing called spearhead. So spearhead that was a sort of the quick reaction force um, if anything went off um, that needed military support. So if there was any major incident, if there was a, a, a war or something, spearhead was the first group that went off. So prior to the Falklands starting off, my medical section would have been put on spearhead. Uh, and when we got back from the Falkland Islands, we were still down as a spearhead unit. So basically what happened there um, is I landed at Bryce Norton in the UK uh, on what one day. I drove back to my unit at Aldershot to get re-kitted out. The following day, I went back to the airport at Bryce Norton and I flew out to Beirut to do a secret operation. Wow. So... No decompression. So uh, basically, I came back from one operation and went straight on to another operation. Can you talk about Beirut, or is that all still classified? 
that's that was sort of we just we went in there to help evacuate a lot of people, uh, but there was a lot of stuff yeah. that we were doing out there that was classified. What's your fondest memories from those early years in the army? One of the ones that sticks out in my memory a lot is, and this happened before we deployed to the Falklands. I was still part. I was in 16 field. We went on uh, an exercise to Cyprus. So we went to Cyprus for four weeks to do some uh, training out in Cyprus. Uh, and we had a little bit of R&R. And we went up to a place called the Trudos Mountains. Now, if you don't know Cyprus, Cyprus is split into two. One half is, got, is run by the Greeks. The other half is run by the, uh, the Turks. And there's what they call a demarcation okay. zone. So there's a, there's a dead zone which is, keeps them separate. Okay, so it's Cyprus was invaded in the 70s by the Turks. And it's one of those places mm. that has still got the UN there keeping the two sides apart. But in Cyprus, we had things called British Sovereign Base Areas. So we used to go over there and do exercises and things. And we went out, we were out there, and a group of us went to the Trudeau's Mountains, the adventure training place, to do some adventure training. And back in them days, um, we had a we had our own bar back at Mom's Barracks in Aldershot, which we called the Mash Bar. And we we're always looking for souvenirs for the bar. So when we were at the the mountains, the local police station, they had a Greek flag, and we thought, oh, that'd look nice in our bar. So one night we decided to go and see if we could get the flag. So me and a couple of the guys, we we went, and I was I was volunteered to be the lookout. So I was going to keep a lookout and make sure the police didn't come while the guys were nicking the flag. When they got to the flagpole, um, they were hoping to just pull the flag down, but it was tied to the top. So one of the guys had to shimmy up the flagpole to get it down. And as he was halfway up the flagpole, me on lookout saw two uh, Greek Cypriot police officers come out of the police station. <laughs> so I turned and legged it and left them guys there and they got caught. <laughs> and um, <laughs> the following day, um, the whole unit was on uh, on parade and the CO and the RSM was there. And they're going, you know, we, we've, we're trying to sort of stop a diplomatic incident here. Somebody tried to take the flag. We got the people concerned. We know there was somebody else involved. We know who it is. We just can't prove who it is, but we know who it is. Um, and the RSM on top of his voice said, oh, Andy Brayshaw, you're on kitchen duty for the rest of the exercise. <laughs> <laughs> so basically I was confident. They knew it was me, but they couldn't prove it was me. <laughs> The three that got caught got sent back to the UK oh. with a tail between the legs. Wow. I stayed behind, but I weren't allowed off pirates anymore. They didn't rat you out, though, even though you ran off and left them there? <laughs> no, no, no. They, they saw it in the fun that it was. <laughs> oh, dear. And the flag lived to see another day. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. We got the flag back to the, uh, to the bar. <laughs> so fast forward a few years. You went off to Iraq. First Gulf War, 1991, yep. triggered, of course, by Iraq's invasion of yep. Kuwait. Again, what was your role in this yep. one? And did you have a bit more notice and, and lead up pre-deployment-wise? Yeah, yeah. we yeah With that, because it, it sort of started at the... Things had started kicking off at the sort of the end of one year and the war started at the beginning of the second year, we, we had some notice. At the time, I was a sergeant at the Duchess of Kent Military Hospital in the UK, 
Uh, and my role at the hospital was I was in charge of the, recep- the reception, the hospital reception area. Um, so we had plenty of notice that things were going to kick off there. And they decided we had a, a field hospital in the UK called the Tutu Field uh, General Hospital, which was the, uh, the military hospital that deployed, deployed on operations. But it was filled by people that worked at the military, the military hospitals at the bases. So we all got mobilized and we went to Tutu Field Hospital and we deployed out to uh, the Gulf. So we had a reasonable notice. We were out in the desert. Um, I didn't realize it snowed in the desert until mm. I got out there. Because <laughs> we had it was that cold at night time, we had snow. Um, yeah, it was one of those um, sort of semi conventional wars. Uh, we all knew that there was a, there was a big threat of sort of Saddam might have used nerve gas or things like that on us. So every time there was an air raid warning, we had to get into full MBC mm. kit, respirators on and everything. Now, when you're doing training in, in NBC or CBRN, as they call it over here, um, we it used to be part of our training all the time. So we do NBC on a daily basis, whereas over here you only do it a little bit when needed. But in the, in the UK Army, we did it all the time. So we're pretty, you know, fully fully up on NBC in that. And, and in training, you're taught that you've got 10 seconds to get your respirator on. If you've not got your respirator on in 10 seconds, then if they're throwing out at you, you're dead. Well, the first time we ever got a, an air raid red, which was a warning that there was an air raid coming in, there's a possibility that there might have been some Scud missiles falling down on top of the hospital. We all sort of got our respirators, and you could hear people counting counting out loud, one, two, three. And when they hit nine, you, all you could hear was people swearing, saying, I'm dead, I'm dead, I'm dead. Because we'd been trained that if you got to get your respirator on in 10 seconds, and it was taking us 15, 20, 30 seconds to get the respirators out of the pouches and get them mm. actually on. <laughs> so it was quite comical at the time. So it ended up with everybody walking around with carrying the respirators actually on their arms. So the arms were in the straps ready yeah. to go. So if they got a call, if they got a call, respirator was there and you put them straight on. Wow. And what sort of anticholinergics yeah. or antidotes were you expecting to treat? Like... Were you well prepped in terms of decontamination? Oh, yeah, yeah. Because, as I say, we did NBC training was part of our conventional warfare yeah. training. So every time you went, we went on a big exercise. And we'd go on ex- big exercises three, four times yeah. a year. So you'd be out on exercise four times a year, four weeks at a time. Two weeks of those, you'd be in full NBC gear. So you were so used to actually decon- decontaminating patients and how to go about yeah. it and everything. Um, so it was, you know, we really quite up on it and we had all the decontamination areas all set up and everything so it was it wasn't anything strange for us because we're all pretty just sort of second nature to us really because it's what we've been training for all the time and what sort of casualties did you end up seeing um we we got a lot of um a lot of the casualties that we got through our hospital were um iraqi prisoners of war that had been Mm. wounded um, so we got quite a few of those through. We got a few of our own soldiers and a few of the coalition soldiers, but most of the casualties we dealt with were Iraqi prisoners of war. Um, there were some what we call friendly fire casualties that we got where um, some of the British armoured vehicles had been mistaken for 
um, Iraqi vehicles by the American uh, fighter pilots and that, and they've been sort of attacked and taken out. So we had a quite a few, few uh, blue on blues. Um, so we had quite a few of those patients come through us. Um, we did. We were lucky enough that we didn't actually get any uh, biological chemical casualties through, because um, in the end, although there was always a threat that Saddam would use it, he didn't actually use it while we're out there. Mm. So we didn't actually have to deal with any uh, casualties from that. But we had a lot of your conventional casualties, gun, but mainly gunshot wounds and shrapnel wounds is what we mainly dealt yeah. with. What was your reception like from the Iraqis? Obviously, you guys were there as an invasion force, not invited. Yep. <laughs> um, so those POWs you treated and that, were they a bit frosty? Um, no, they were, they were... Most of the ones we saw were pretty, you know, reasonable. They didn't have any... Um, animosity towards us i think i think a lot of them had been sort of fighting because they were told you're going to fight rather than they mm. wanted to fight because it wasn't you know they weren't much of a, a volunteer army like the british yeah. army is um so and uh, there were times when some of the um the iraqi patients must have thought we were torturing them <laughs> Because I remember one incident, we had uh, an Iraqi come in who had shrapnel wounds to his leg. Uh, and the doctor said, oh, we need to clean those wounds out. Um, so the doctor got the scrubbing brush and he's scrubbing away at this guy's bits of flesh that are hanging off on his body. And of course, this old Iraqi screaming his head off as the doctor's scrubbing him. Uh, and he must, you know, he must have thought, you know, these guys are torturing me. When in fact, what the doctor was doing really was cleaning yeah. his wounds. Um, but, you know... You get somebody doing something like that to you, the first thing you think about is I'm being tortured. Mm. And how did you work with the Americans or other coalition partners, or were you pretty much in a British hospital setup? Yeah, I was in a, I was in a British hospital, but we did have a, a lot of liaison with the Americans. Went through to the, uh, the local MASH hospital a couple of times because um, we'd do some... Uh, patient transfer so if we if they got brit casualties in we'd go over to their hospital to collect the brits from them and bring them back to our mm. hospital and vice versa if we got any americans we'd do the same so we're always in working interacting with the americans yeah it's interesting you say you know like the iraqis weren't overly overly concerned or <laughs> like I, I was over there in 2017, obviously when Iraq was uh, trying to rid the country of ISIS and their, their massive takeover. Yep. And I just couldn't believe, like, given the first Gulf War, second Gulf War, how much conflict we'd had directly against the Iraqi army, then how welcoming and willing they were for us to come and train them and work with them in the fight yep. against ISIS. Like... It was falafels and, and uh, dancing and sheesh and party time and they were quite <laughs> uh, lovely <laughs> and uh, friendly. Yeah, so, yeah. Uh, I mean, that's that's yeah, a pretty it, short it, memory, you know. We're talking the 90s through to, you know, 20, 25 years later and, yeah. Yeah, yeah it's, it's, it's one of those strange things, really, when it comes to military that, you know, one time you can be the enemy with each other. The next next war, you're, you're partners in the war. 
Yeah, and it's, and it's that bit of that mutual respect that that was over and done with, and let's move on. Yeah, I mean, I've got to admit when when I get when I went out to Croatia and Bosnia, um, there was a little bit of animosity because when I deployed to Croatia, they said, "Oh, Andy, your medical section, you're going to support Argentinian bat," and I just flew off the handle and said, "I'm not supporting Argentinian bat." Because yeah. they wanted me to, my medical section, to support the Argentinian battalion. Yeah. <laughs> and I was adamant I was not going to support the Argentinian battalion. Because um, I still had a lot of animal support. And were you forced to? No, 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 no. The, um, luckily, because of the way we were being deployed over there with the UN, as part of the UN, my CO and my, my chain of command mm. understood, understood where I was coming from. And I think rather than sort of agitate the situation, uh, they thought it was better to put me in another, put my section in another area and put somebody else's section who hadn't been involved in the Falklands War into the Argent, support the Argentinian battalion. Yeah, fair enough. And like 20 years for you, pretty much, wasn't it? Bosnia and Croatia, 92. Yeah, it was 20 years, but it was still very, it was still very um, raw and painful. Yeah. I think it was more to the fact that there's quite a few things out there that I saw that you you know are hard to forget. Yeah, yeah, and you carry those memories with you forever. So. Oh yeah, yeah, mm. yeah. So what did you get up to in Bosnia? Yeah, so when we when we deployed to Croatia and Bosnia, we we deployed as part of the United Nations Protection Force. So basically, um, the area I went into in Croatia, um, it was known as the Kraina. And what it was, it was a small area of Croatia that had been taken over by the Serbians. So it was a Serbian enclave actually inside Croatia. And the UN's role out there was to try and keep the Serbians and the Croatians apart, to stop them from fighting each other. And so we were out there, we were at a place called Topusco, and... We were, my section was the British Medical Battalion Sector North. So we were based at this place in, in Toposco. And we were just there to provide medical support to the UN uh, infantry battalions that were out on the front, keeping the, uh, the Serbians and the Croatians apart at all the flashpoint areas. Um, although we were there with the UN, there were some uh, incidents where, you know, it got a little bit dicey. Um, I remember there was a lot of, one of the main problems out there was there were a lot of landmines. And I remember that where we were in Croatia, it was classed as sort of the war zone. But where my headquarters and the main part of my unit were, they were in Zagreb. And that was called, called Slipper City because nothing was happening in Zagreb. So everything was peaceful and quiet. There was nothing, no fighting or anything going off. So that was called Slipper City. And... I, I remember we used to have to vary our routes uh, when we were going back into Zagreb uh, to get supplies and stuff. We had to vary our routes. Um, I remember once that we went, we got used to doing this route to sort of circumnavigate this town that they wanted us to stay away from. And we went one, the sort of the next day we went, we're driving along the dirt track and then suddenly me, me and my driver said, well, hang on a minute, what's that there? And the Serbians had gone and mined the track. And we ended up in the middle of a minefield. Hmm. 
So what we had to do is I had to get out of the vehicle and walk in front of the vehicle, identifying the mine so my driver could drive safely out. Mm. And at one stage, we must have been about two inches from a mine before we realised there was a mine there. That would have been pretty so I got hairy, a bit dicey at mine. Yeah, just a yeah, yeah, yeah. understatement there. Yeah. A bit dicey, yeah. Yeah, I mean, they, we did have a couple of run-ins with the Serbian militia. Um, the rule was that it doesn't matter whether you were Serbian or Croatian in the militia, the UN vehicles were not supposed to be stopped and searched, okay? Mm. It was against the UN mandate. You weren't supposed to stop and search the UN vehicles. I uh, remember we were coming back from Zagreb once, uh, me and my driver, because there was only ever two people in the vehicle at any one time. Uh, and the, the the Serbian militia had a good idea that if it was a British that were manning the, um, the UN vehicle that was coming through their checkpoint, if it was a British, there's a good chance there was going to be alcohol, beer, cigarettes in the vehicle because we do our we do our weekly runs back to zagreb to get the beer and the cigarettes for the troops so we're coming back from zagreb one day and we arrived at this checkpoint and there's about a dozen serbian militia armed to the teeth across the road and they're wanting to search the vehicle and we're saying look no sorry guys you can't search the vehicle uh and it got to the stage where it's getting quite aggressive so what we ended up doing is I had to take my driver's weapon, which was an SA-80 automatic rifle, his his rifle, my rifle, full magazine on, weapons cocked. I sat on the front of the Land Rover as he drove forward. Uh, and I'm thinking, if these guys open fire, you know, then me and him are dead. We don't stand a chance. And all I can remember when we drove through the roadblock is all I could hear were these Serbians going, mad British, mad British. <laughs> <laughs> so, luckily, it was a bluff that paid off. So, just a Land Rover, not even a hardened vehicle. So, yeah. Oh, yeah, it's just a normal Land Rover. Completely exposed. <laughs> yeah. Wow. <laughs> yep. And, of course, those landmines ended up hitting a lot of civilian casualties and uh, injuring a lot of children. Did you do any HA oh, yeah, yeah. work over there as well? Oh, yeah. We did a lot, we, we, we did a lot of humanitarian work while I was there. Um the area where we were, that our headquarters was based inside a school building, an old school building. Next door to the school was a kindergarten. And my med section, we sort of adopted the kindergarten uh, and we started doing things to help out the kiddies in the kindergarten to the stage where we were there over Easter and Christmas. So during over the Christmas period, we actually put on a, a Christmas party for the kiddies. Um, so we... We managed to, we sent letters back to our families in Germany because we were living in Germany back then. So we found, sent letters back to our families in Germany asking for gifts to be sent out so we could give presents to the kiddies. So we got all these gifts sent out to us. So we wrapped the presents up for the party. I dressed up as Santa and I made a Santa costume <laughs> using cotton wool as a beard and my old red dressing gown as my Santa coat. Um, I played Santa and I also did some, because I'm a magician, I did, I did put a little bit of a magic show on for the kids as well to entertain the kids, uh, which went down quite well with the locals. Um, then over the Easter period, um, we got a load of Cadbury's cream eggs. We went down to Zagreb and bought out the whole of the Naffy shop, which was uh, the Naffy is the British Army's version of uh, the Australian front line. Mm -hmm. So we, we, brought out, uh, we bought all the uh, Cadbury's cream eggs from the shop 
we took them back to the kindergarten and we did an Easter egg hunt. So we hid all these Easter eggs around the kindergarten and in the playing field and everything. Uh, and let the kiddies make the Easter baskets. And then all the kiddies went out uh, hunting for the Easter eggs. So we did a lot of hearts and minds stuff while we were there. Nice. Yeah. That would have been rewarding, yeah. though. Just making someone's day. Oh, yeah. It was very better. rewarding. Yeah. 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 Yeah, and I was, I mean, back back in those days, I was quite keen on my running because I did a lot of marathon runnings. Um, and we were working alongside the UNHCR, the United Nations Children's Charity. And we, we decided that we'd raise some money for them. So what we did, we, we decided we'd put on a half marathon, what we call the Brit, Bed, the Brit Medbat Half Marathon. So we opened it up to all the coalition forces that were out there. We had about 100 runners go in it. The only problem was um, we didn't really have enough personnel to man all the checkpoints and everything. So what we ended up doing is going to the local Serbian militia, having a chat with the commander and getting him to get his Serbian militia troops to man the checkpoints and hand out water to all the runners, (laughs) (laughs) which was quite quite funny at times. Yeah. I remember that there was one incident with me and my nursing officer, Dave Bates. Uh, we were laying out the course for the marathon and we were running along this edge of this field and everything. And we could see all these local villagers shouting and waving. We thought, oh, they're waving at us. So we waved back to them. And it wasn't until we got back that the villagers came up to us and told us we'd just gone and run through a minefield. Yeah. So we'd run through a minefield and not realize we were in a minefield. So change the course there a little bit <laughs> next time. Wow. Yeah, just, just, just a little bit, yeah. yeah. Oh, shit. <laughs> a lot of close calls. <laughs> what do you think were yeah. the biggest sort of medical innovations and, and lessons learnt across those conflicts? And Did you see sort of an evolution in medic practice in those 24 years in the British Army? Um, yeah, we we did. I mean, when we dealt with patients in the Falklands, it was basically we relied heavily on field dressings and IV drips. That's the sort of the stuff that we had all the time with us. Um, obviously, as we progressed through, that's when we started looking. It wasn't until sort of the late 90s that we started talking TCCC stuff. Yeah. Um, so up until then, we just made, it was just basically a lot of the stuff that we could carry with us, which was the field dressings and the IVs. Um, I mean, out, out in the Falklands, uh, we'd all been trained to do crikes, um, put in tubes, mm. uh, cannulate in different areas of the body and all that sort of stuff. Um, so they were all second nature to us. Um, but as we got through towards the sort of the 90s, the late 90s and that, when TCCC started coming in, that's when we they started... Um, changing the way we dealt with patients. Um, unfortunately, or fortunately, whichever way you want to look at it, I hadn't got involved in too many conflicts towards the back end of that period when TCCC came in. I had a lot of work. I did a lot of work with TCCC in that, but only training it rather than actually doing it on the front line. Mm. Um, I, st- I still say, even today, I still say that um, what, the, what the medic carries with him, you know, he, the medic is the guy who's on the ground. And one of the biggest fit problems I had when I came over to the ADF was that um, I found that the ADF, in a way, had lost 
the scope of what a medic was. Because when I came to the ADF, they, they were looking at doing all these additional skills for the medics, making them, you know, giving them all the nursing skills and things like that. Mm. Uh, and at one stage, we were doing geriatrics and things like that. And having worked with soldiers on the front line, a soldier on the front line doesn't want to know that the medic that's going to treat him knows how to look after old people and geriatrics. They want to know that, you know, if I get shot, this guy knows how to save me. Yeah. And I, I felt when I came over to the ADF that we'd strayed a lot from what a, what a, medic, what a medic's role really was. And it wasn't until sort of deploying that day, you know, that the guys started going out to places like Iraq and Afghanistan, but they started to come back and realize that, all right, these things like nursing and that, yeah, it's a good thing for them to have, but it's not exactly what they're supposed to be doing, mm. what they're supposed to be doing. We need to give them the skills and the knowledge and the equipment to deal with somebody who gets hit on the line. Um, and that's why, when you know, when they brought in C with all the use of all the, the different uh, style tourniquets and things like that and hemostatic dressings, um, that's when they sort of, that's the innovation that I saw was, you know, if we'd have had this stuff in the Falklands, we would have saved more lives than what we did. I mean, the good thing about the Falklands War was every patient that made it to hospital survived. Yeah. So if they got to the hospital, if they got to the first hospital, the Red and Life Green Machine, they survived. Uh, and there was two reasons for that. One was because of the training of the medics, and two was because it was so cold. Because mm. uh, they because the weather was so cold, a lot of guys were lying on the battlefields all night long in sub-zero temperatures. And a lot of times it was a cold that actually aided their survival. It was like a therapeutic hypothermia that slowed down their metabolic rate. Yeah. And yeah. Wow. Yeah. Fascinating. Yeah. But back to our roots in terms of medics doing trauma care and nursing doing yeah. the nursing stuff later on. Yeah. Yeah. So how did you find yeah. your time in the Australian Army compared with the British Obviously, you'd got to RSM yep. level, Warren Officer Class 1, and then you decided to do that big yep. move over to Australia. And you had to yep. take a, um, a rank uh, drop to do that. So, yeah, yep. was that a big culture yep. shock and a, and, a, and a massive change? or? It, it, was, it was a bit of a culture shock. Uh, I mean, the, the, my initial reaction when I came over to Australia... Uh, from the British Army, as I say, leaving as an RSM, was I felt that, you know, the Australian soldier was a lot more laid back than the British soldier. And, um, I mean, it's not nothing detrimental against the Australian soldier. It's just, you know, if you look at the Australian lifestyle, the Australians themselves are quite laid back. Yeah. So it wasn't anything detrimental, but it did take me a while to get used to it. Um one of the other problems we had when I came over, um, believe it or not, was a language barrier. Because <laughs> um, when I came over to the ADF, my first role, I was the, um, the well-med at uh, HCSSB, which is an Army Reserve unit in uh, Dundas, and I was the health woe there. And I always remember the first Tuesday night parade that we had, um, they had all the guys on, on parade, all the guys and gals were on parade. And I thought, I'll go down and take them for drill. So there they are all lined up in a squad ready to do drill. I, I comes out, starts barking out orders to them. And all they did was just stood there and they're going, what did he say? What did he say? They couldn't understand a word I was saying. 
Like, it was broad, broad Yorkshire language, which is just, they just couldn't understand me. <laughs> so of course, I had to do a little bit of uh, I had to do a little bit of retraining on to what you know some of the terminology I use compared to the terminology they used, so they could actually understand what I was saying. Yes, <laughs> Australian language is really lazy. We just sort of half say words and <laughs> get around it. And, yeah. yeah, hence the laid back nature. Yeah, yeah. funny. Um, what was your motivation for coming over? Was it the weather, like most lateral transfers, or something else? No, no, no. I mean, basically, I'm a soldier. That, that's that's what I am. That's what I always wanted to be. That's what I was. And when I left, the thing with the British Army, you know, especially when I joined so young, is the average maximum time in the British Army is 22 years. That's the most you can do. So I was 40 when I retired from the British Army. So I was still a young man, basically. And um, I'd heard that, you know, there was a thing called lateral transfer, which the Australians were looking at taking people in as lateral transfers. Um, so I, I did a little bit of investigation into it. And I thought, oh, that's not a bad idea. You know, I wouldn't mind doing that. It wasn't the fact because it was Australia. It was the fact that it was still military because I still wanted to be military. Yeah, okay. So I put in, I put in my paperwork and... I actually got accepted to the ADF uh, to start to be posted for the January cycle in 2001. So January 2001, I was supposed to have been posted to uh, to HSB uh, as it was then back at uh, up in Brisbane, mm-hmm. um, and I, so I got my posting order and everything, uh, and I went, oh no, I can't actually do that. Because it meant um, I'd be leaving the British Army three months early, which means I would have lost my pension, and I, I stood to lose too much money. Yeah, fair enough. So I wrote to I wrote to the ADF, and everything was done by snail mail back then. So it took a long time to get sorted. So I wrote back to him. I said, "Look, this is going to be financial suicide if I come over now. Can I delay it three months?" And they, they contacted me and said, well, you can delay it three months. We can't guarantee you a job. You're going to have to apply, go through everything all over again. I said, fair enough, no problems. So I restarted the application process at the start of 2001. So I was due to leave the the British Army in April 2001. So I restarted the process. And as I say, everything was done by snail mail. And I got accepted again into the ADF. They accepted me in... April 2001, uh, but all the paperwork and everything hadn't didn't go through until June 2002. So it took about 18 months for all the paperwork to go through, yeah. with it being done by snail mail. Frustrating. Um, so, so I'd left the Brit. I'd already left the British Army, but I knew that I was coming to the Australian Army. So I knew I had a job. Um, so I was just doing certain little jobs uh, while I was waiting to come over. Um, I've, a lot of guys uh, that I knew in the British Army had been over to Australia on long look. Mm. You know, your, your guys come over to us. We send guys over to to the ADF. So we knew we knew a lot of guys had gone on long look, and that's how they got their first introduction to the Australian Army. My introduction to the Australian Army was out of the blue. I'd never never even been to Australia. Didn't have a clue what it was like. Didn't have a clue about the country or anything. The only thing that motivated me to come over was the fact that I was going to get a job in the military, yeah. which is what I wanted to do. And you're a career soldier. Um, so I, I, I was lucky enough to get over. 
I was lucky enough to be accepted. And um, I've got to admit, you know, it, is a, it was an easy way of getting over without it costing me anything. Because, I mean, the, the ADF paid for everything. They paid for our flights, they paid for my family flights. They they put me up in a hotel in the UK because I had to sell my house. I had to sell my car so they get, let me have a hire car for two weeks in the UK. Um, they paid for my, my eldest daughter who was a version of TAFE over in the UK. So she hadn't quite finished. So they allowed her to come over later and pay for her to come over. Mm. Uh, at the time, we had a dog. So I thought, well, we're going to take the dog with us, but I thought, I'll pay for the dog. I didn't want to push me up too far, so we agreed to pay for the dog. <laughs> <laughs> so we paid for the dog to come over. ADF paid for everything else. <laughs> well, they, they're they seeing the value in those years of experience and what you can bring. So yeah, it's probably a good investment. Yeah, that's it. And, and back then, you had very few people that had actually done active service yeah. um you, you had a few people left over from the vietnam era but iraq and uh, afghanistan hadn't started back mm. then so you had very few people that actually had the experience and that's one of the things that, that got me in was the fact that i had this experience and timor was only just sort of starting to kick off for us then that's it well, yeah so what was the 22 year cap that was a blanket rule you could only serve for 22 years it didn't matter if you're only in your early 40s yeah yeah so the, the british army the maximum you could do was 22 years uh, and they had they also had a cut-off date so um if you know, your cut-off date for joining the army was 29 so if you're over 29 you couldn't join the oh, right. which is what surprised me when i came over here because i did a stint down at kapook and yeah. i think guys coming through sort of in the 50s joining the army i'm going what the hell <laughs> but you know the cop mm. time in the UK was 29 so if you were 29 or over you, you were too old to join the army wow uh, that would be really yeah really challenging for a lot of like specialists yeah. if you want to go and train and be an anaesthetist or whatever you're not even getting there until into your 30s yeah. at least that's, and that's, so, that's one of the problems that they had oh, they, wow. they, they, they had all these really highly skilled people and they were losing them uh, you know, once once they've done the twenty two years, because yeah, some people would go commission and they get commission, and they can do a few more years, but you know, the uh, the possibilities of getting commission were very limited. Okay, so I I met my I made my goal because my goal in the British Army was to make RSM, and I, I made my I achieved my goal. Every I mean, a lot of people said I'd never get on the army. I was when I joined the army back in seventy seven. When I left school, there were six of us joined the army at the same time from my school. And everybody said, Brayshaw, you will never last five minutes in the army. After three years, I was the only person still serving. <laughs> so I proved them wrong there. <laughs> and then went on to do... I think you there. proved them wrong. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Several times over. Yeah. <laughs> so your time in Australia, how was that? You obviously... You didn't get the chance to deploy with the ADF, which is a bit of a bugger, really. Yeah. But... Um, did you enjoy your time serving over here? Oh yeah, I did. I mean, I one of my uh, one of my biggest um, achievements I feel within the ADF was that I was I was heavily involved in the Army Reserve uh, Combat Medical Attendant trade. So I was I was there from the from the kickoff basically, um, and I, I I ran the the sort of the the courses when they first started the pilot course and everything. So I was heavily involved in it. And it actually got me, I was actually awarded the CF Marks Award for all the work I did with the um, 
with the CMA course. So that was quite an achievement. I really, you know, mm. I got a lot out of that, and that was it was good to get the recognition. Yeah, I bet. And getting people off the street and, and training them up to be used in that capacity is really important. Oh yeah, yeah. Because I, mean, I I love training. I mean, I still train now. I've been because I'm, I'm a first aid trainer in City Street, so I've been teaching first aid for over thirty five years. Um, so in my spare time, when I was with the Brits, I'd be out teaching first aid to the civilians. Mm. And it was a passion of mine. It's something that I've always done, uh, and I still do it now. I, I teach a lot of first aid courses now. And it's, you know, it's one of the passions that I've, and I've seen so much change in first aid. And when I, when I joined the army in 77, uh, there was three different ways of doing artificial resuscitation on a patient. Uh, there's the old mouth to mouth, chest compressions. There's the old Holger Nielsen method where you're pushing down on the back and pulling their arms up. The mm-hmm. Sil- Sylvester method where you're using their arms to try and get them breathing again. Um, and of course, as time goes by, that's when you realize that, okay, that actually doesn't work. That actually doesn't work. So I've seen a lot of progress in the field of uh, first aid and that, um, as well as in the, the field of medical, uh, military medical work. Um, so, I, you know, it's, it's one of those things that's really been, always been a passion for me. How did you then feel facing that medical discharge in 2020? Yeah, it was, it, it came hard. Um, it was one of those things that, I try. I've, I've been fighting it for quite a while. Uh, I managed to sort of extend a few times, uh, but it got to the stage really then where you know they they were looking and saying, "Well, you you're too broken to actually be Benny, you know, to be an asset for the military anymore." Um, so you know we're going to have to let you go. And you, you, I put a few redresses up in that, but it was just it's just one of those things that you know. You don't want to accept it. You can see, with hindsight, you can see the point of view of what people are saying. Uh, but, you know, you still feel like, oh, I don't really want this to happen. Because it's, it's one of, it's, I always said something to my guys when I was with the British Army and the, the soldiers used to serve under me. I always said, my intention is to die when my boot's on. Um, and I never achieved that. <laughs> Um, and it's it's just it's just one of those things. It's it's hard to come to terms with. I still haven't fully come to terms with it. Mm. Um, and it you know it it leads on to other things as well. Yeah, it's just that the power to choose when you transition out is taken from you, isn't it? It's um, now yeah. a medical decision. Yeah. 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 So what's next for you then, yeah. Andy? Still working in that first aid training space? Yeah, yeah. So I, I work for a, a number of RTOs delivering training. Um, I still do, try to get my do some hands-on first aid when I can. Um, as I say, I'm still passionate about it. I, I don't feel like giving it up yet. Uh, my, some of my mates, you know, they'll say, oh, about time you're retiring, Andy, now, you know, they, they, the Army's got rid of you. Why don't you retire? But I'm one of those people I can't retire. You know, I've got to be active all the time. I've got to be doing something all the time. Because, you know, when I, if I stop doing something, that's when I'm going to sort of, you know, start to go down. I've got it downhill. I've got to keep myself active all the time. Mm. Yeah, fair enough. Andy, thanks so much for coming on Care Under Fire and for sharing your experiences with us. Pretty epic career, really, and stuff that we yep. don't get to hear about uh, the Falklands and that very often. And it's really important to not forget history. Yep. And thank you for your service. 
Yep, no problems. Thanks for uh, having me on.